It's 1989. You're a restless teenager lying in bed, unable to get your crush off of your mind. You hear something in the distance. It's your crush holding a big silver boombox over their head, and it's playing your song. Okay, maybe you're not Diane Court from Say Anything, but love songs have definitely played an important role in your life. I think that love songs show us some commonalities of how in our broad society we live our lives. They fill these different moments in our lives. You have a proposal song or a wedding song or a prom song, and then people remember that moment and they remember that song. So this way in which musicians offer us these soundtracks to our lives and the moments that we want to have a, a memory point, we encapsulate that with a song. That's Jocelyn Neal. She's a Gordon and Bowman Gray Distinguished Professor of Music in the College of Arts and Sciences. She's been at Carolina for over 20 years, and she specializes in Southern music studies. Welcome to Well Said the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's official storytelling podcast. I'm Cece Huffman, a student podcaster at Carolina. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, so this week we're talking with Jocelyn about what makes us love love songs. Jocelyn's heard all kinds of love songs in her years of studying music, from country to pop to classical but she says she doesn't have a favorite. They come in so many different layers. Um, there's been a number of people who've done great research on what songs are about. And without a doubt, three quarters of songs in say country music and slightly higher in pop are either about happy love or lost love. And that that's the framing device. So the majority of the music that we might listen to in the regular popular musical genres has some connection to this. So there's so many to choose from that what any person is going to like and what I like is going to vary from moment to moment, uh, depending on what genre I'm listening to at that point in time, and whether I want a song that's just plain happy love, which is not the majority of them, or a song that has a kind of nostalgia or these layers of love. And one of the songs that is super popular, uh, it makes the top list of many lists of, of greatest love songs ever, um, is a great example of that. And it's Dolly Parton, I Will Always Love You, which of course was covered by Whitney Houston and used in a movie. And this use in a movie is also really important because that gives your viewer a visual connection to a song as well. And this song makes these lists of top songs ever. And yet it's a song not only about love, but about loss and leaving and regret and nostalgia and the bitterness of separation. And that's a whole lot to put in one song that makes this top list of, of love songs and which many casual listeners think is the ultimate expression of, you know, I will always love you. So love songs aren't always about love. Sometimes they're about the absence of it. Or sometimes they're not really about loving a significant other at all. They're just pop culture. Some songs seem to last partly because we in our culture um, put those songs in moments that get a lot of public attention. And so a lot of times when someone is looking for a song to become their song or they and their lover's song, they're going to hook back to a movie scene that they saw or a moment in their lives when they were at a place or in a particular conversation and a song came on. So they're connecting time and song. And most love songs that stand the test of time, they tend to have a couple of features. 
they are specific without being unique. So they have details in them that you can connect to and you can envision the scene that the songwriter or the performer is creating, but it's not so specific that you couldn't also see yourself in that scene. Uh, they tend to be very apolitical. They tend to have a kind of neutrality that lets people connect to them, whether the, the person listening to it is young or old, uh, sort of regardless of where they are in life. They try to use these things that we artificially consider universals to connect to them. Love songs have a sort of timelessness. They're not full of references to material culture at the time. They're about emotional culture. And that's why we might hear the same song over and over by artist after artist, because everyone can emotionally connect with it. You find people today connecting to songs from the past if that's the genre that they like to listen to, or more importantly, if that's the cultural setting that they imagine themselves in. So if someone has this... um, mental image of an ideal romantic situation as a 1940s movie, maybe even a black and white movie, then you're going to have a soundtrack that matches that time period connecting to you for that love song. And if you happen to love R&B, then you're going to gravitate towards an artist in that genre who can use sometimes even the same images or the same kinds of concepts there. And there have been so many love songs that people sing and talk about and connect to over the years that songwriters also play with that very idea. And they write love songs about love songs and love songs about the cliches of other love songs. And so you get this wonderfully self-referential collection of music that an individual can hear as unique and special to them, even though eight million other people also are connecting to that song. And sometimes sociologists talk about this phenomenon as a kind of public intimacy. So literally millions of people are imagining and feeling an emotional response to a song as if that songwriter is singing it directly to them, and yet it's transferable to 8 million people. So, you know, you and I, we might not have much in common other than professional interactions, and yet we might both think that Ed Sheeran is singing our personal love song to us. And that's how, of course, he comes up with a hit. Many people's daily existence is colored by how we feel emotionally in connection to the people around us, the people we love, the people we want to love, the people who loved us, who used to love us, all of these different layers of it. And musicians pick up on that. There's also a market for it. That's what people want to listen to a lot of the time. So the moral of the story is people typically connect to a song if they imagine it expressing something they either can't or won't say. It's like the cultural phenomenon of making your crush a mixed CD or a playlist. Every song says what you can't. For instance, when someone wants to propose to their significant other, rather than have to come up with a lot of words to say, uh, they can even log on to the internet and find lists of available songs that will express what in many ways should be the absolutely most personal thing they could say, and they're going to do it through a recording or through a lip sync or through a cover of a song that a songwriter wrote. And that seems to have been a trend that is not new. That goes back uh, as far as the music that we could listen to does. These songs um, fill a kind of imaginary space in how we would like to interact with the people that we're closest to without having to say or do the things ourselves. And therefore, we find these songs being used for significant cultural moments, you know, a wedding dance, um, a proposal. You want to craft a soundtrack if you're planning an intimate date. These songs really become um, a framing and enabling device in the way that we interact with people around us. A lot of people agree that songs don't reflect us and they don't speak to us as much as they speak for us. And this is a common phenomenon when people are with someone they care about and 
a song comes on that they care about, and they either sing along or lip sync along or play air instruments along, that we become the voice presenting this song in our space. And this relatability can lead to a lot of repetition, and that can lead to cliches. With everybody trying to write the next great love or breakup song for their newest album, songs can start to sound the same. And that's been going on for a long time. Um, The idea of cliché rhymes, and it's always cited as moon, June, and love, dove, above, then becomes fodder not for writing a song about the moon in June, but for writing a song about how you're not going to just sing about the moon in June. And that also becomes very genre-specific. So there are a lot of songs in the country genre that say uh, many cliches about love are about things I have no personal experience with, so instead I'm going to use these images or these metaphors. Um, there's a Randy Travis song that says, I don't know about these you know, oceans and diamonds. I'm going to instead sing love metaphors about the things that are my country experience. And so these layers of referentiality um, allow singers to differentiate from the the imaginary generic love song. There is a song that has a Carolina history that's kind of fun, and it's back in 1956. And this goes back to what we were talking about, where songs, love songs have cliches, and one of those cliches is is a, a bouquet of roses or that you bring your lover chocolates. And there was a songwriter from Durham named John D. Laddermilk, and he wrote a song called A Rose and a Baby Ruth. And here again, it's about a songwriter taking a cliche and personalizing it. And so his song was about being too poor to afford the usual cliche trappings of expressing romance. And so instead, all he can afford is one rose and one baby roof. That's his flowers and chocolate. And there was a student at Carolina named George Hamilton IV who recorded this song. And it was recorded by a local record label. And it became a big hit. And it actually launched the careers in many ways for both the songwriter and the artist. And so A Rose and a Baby Ruth came to life right here on this campus in 1956. And it's kind of a Carolina love song. Great for Valentine's Day on a budget. But it's not just a song's themes that matter. It's the structure of the song as a whole. Artists can't just write about love. Love is not just the generic topic for a song. We have to dive into which of those kinds of expressions of love we want to write. Um, And then we have to make something, if we want a lot of people to possibly connect to it, we have to make something that has some repetition in the actual structure of the song that someone could sing along to. Because again, one of the ways that we like to connect to our love songs is we like to be able to voice them ourselves, even if we're not actually singing, even if we're just imagining we're singing or lip syncing along. And so many of the most popular songs have a lot of repetition. They have a chorus that is pretty easy to remember or learn so that we can um, imagine if we're just a listener that it's our song too. And then we want to come up with, with elements for the lyrics that are specific but not too specific. And that's the danger zone. It needs to be specific enough to give a reality to the song where it takes on a, a lived material form. Um, So, you know, what are we drinking? Where are we sitting? What's around us? Uh, What are we talking about? Just enough cultural references to give it an instantiation of material culture. And yet it's still got to be transferable to someone who's not sitting in that place or experiencing that exact set of circumstances. So there's a psychology to love songs that makes us fall in love. Music is a powerful emotional and cultural tool. And musicians like Jocelyn in Carolina's Department of Music are diving deeper into its power every day. So most of my research centers on American country music, but I also work on ideas about music and dance. Um, We've just piloted a new course that we're really excited about 
uh, a songwriting course in the music department that is in concert with what's happening in the creative writing program. So there are more places on campus where students can develop these skills and explore these areas. I teach a lot of classes in music theory and analysis. I teach classes in the history of popular music, including country music and bluegrass. And I've been teaching the songwriting class, um, as well as graduate seminars in different specialized areas of research. My research has, has expanded beyond just song analysis or close readings. And I look at how it's the music is received in cultural settings. I look at how fans I'll say the word consume this music in different aspects of their lives over different time periods, and how we can use our understanding of music as a window into understanding culture and understanding what people's values are. Um, if we think of these songs, as we were talking about earlier, as speaking for the person who's listening to it, as giving a voice to an idea or a feeling they have, then we can also look at the music carefully and, and with, with good research techniques as a way of understanding what individuals or groups of people are thinking about and concerned about and excited about at different points and different communities in history. Love songs are the one through thread in all of these different changes and that whatever the conditions are, people seem to always be falling in and out of love and cheating on their loves. And that idea of a personal connection to a song still exists all the way through. So what's our relationship with love songs? It's complicated. To learn more about Carolina's Department of Music, please visit their website at music.unc.edu. Do you have an idea for an upcoming episode of Well Said? Let us know. Tweet us at UNC or email us at wellsaid at unc.edu. You can find Well Said wherever you listen to podcasts, so we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Said. See you next week.